0: to the ends of the earth, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Please look with me at Luke chapter 2, and uh, I don't customarily do this sort of thing, but I just have to say that was delightful. That was just delightful. Thank you. Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 1 and reading through verse 21, the narrative of the birth of Jesus, which we will celebrate at 6 p.m. on Tuesday evening. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. They made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is God's word for his people. Let's pray for understanding concerning it. Father, help us, uh, bless us, encourage us, but open our eyes and open our hearts that we might see and understand and then, and then believe these things inconceivable, incomprehensible things. And then, O oh Lord, as we understand and believe them, would you engage us in such a way that we might be changed and go back out into this world to give evidence to the world around of the truth and the reality of the Savior who has come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Joy, 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 everywhere, joy, joy. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Gloom. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. See, Isaiah, Isaiah saw it coming... Zechariah and Elizabeth were there when it came, as was Mary, as were the shepherds. And as we've been saying, it had an effect. It had an effect. And the effect of the result, the consequence, was joy. I had a conversation this last week. One of those conversations you'd really like to have more. uh, You'd like to have more conversations like this conversation. It's a conversation with a new Christian. Like, you know, still in the hospital kind of Christian, right? Like three days ago kind of Christian. Some of you remember that, right? Now, some of you have a different kind of story. You, you have a story in which, in which there was never a time when you didn't believe these things. And, and we understand all of this is by the grace of God, but the beauty of the outworking of the grace of God is that no two stories are exactly alike. God's artistry is not only etched across the canvas of creation, but his artistry is etched across the stories of individual lives. And some of you, you can't remember a time when you didn't believe these things. But some of us remember a time when we didn't believe these things. As I shared with you a few weeks ago, as I reflect on those days before, by God's grace, I came to see these things, the word gloom is a great word to describe those days. But then a day came, when everything changed. And that's what had happened to this, this man. And this guy's not a young guy. He's, uh, he qualifies as an old guy, okay? He just does. But something happened to him. And to listen to him talk, you know that something dramatic happened. Occurred. There was not believing, and then, and then almost suddenly there was believing, and everything changed. And this is a guy, this is fascinating, this is a guy who was insightful enough, wise enough to say in his days of non-believing, if God wants me, he's going to have to come and get me, he's going to have to call me. And he did. And everything changed. Everything changed. And as I listened to him talk, and I, I listened to him talk about the fact that he, you know, he's just not interested in reading the books that he used to read anymore. I mean, this is in 72, 96 hours, you know. He doesn't want to read the stuff. What if he reads the Bible for two or three hours at a sitting? It's like, who does that? And the Word. The word that he didn't use, but that I would use to describe what I saw on his face is the word joy. Joy. And one of the things he said was, I don't know anything. I don't know how to pray. I don't know what words to use. And this Trinity thing, one in three and three in one, to me, one is one and three is three. I don't get that and i said don't worry about it don't worry about it it'll come together it'll happen you'll never understand it in the sense that you'll never comprehend it right finitum non capax infinity the finite cannot comprehend, circumscribe, press into our peanut little brains the majesty, the limitlessness, the incomprehensibility of an infinite God. You'll never understand it, but you'll learn to see it. And folks, that's what I see. And I've been helped in this. I've been helped by reading. I've been helped by listening. I've been helped by people dead. I've been helped by people alive. I've been helped by people who go back to the fourth century and the Council of Nicaea, which first articulated an understanding of the relationship of the two natures and the one unique person of Jesus. And then later in 381 in Constantinople, where they added to that and they articulated an understanding of the Holy Spirit. And so suddenly you've got this Trinitarian thing. They didn't comprehend it. They didn't understand it. They just sought to describe it. Folks, you can't wrap your brain around it because your brain isn't big enough. But you can see it. And that's what I see in the first couple of chapters of Luke's Gospel. You learn some things. Maybe some things you already know But let me suggest there are things that probably need to be pressed back into our hearts and souls and our minds yet again. You learn some things. You learn some things about the Father and about the Spirit and about the beloved Son. You learn some things about the Father, number one. What do you learn about the Father? Here's the stunning thing. The stunning thing. Matthew Henry, you've got to read Matthew Henry's commentary. It's however many hundreds of years old. He's one of those dead people whose influence is, is way larger in death than it ever was in life. You've got to read Matthew Henry. He's so pastorly, so sweet. I learned this from him, learned it from others. Here's the thing you learn about the Father. The Father loves to dwell with the lowly. The Father loves to associate with the lowly. The Father loves to speak to the humble, to the simple. It's really interesting, isn't it, as you read through Luke 1 and 2. It's really interesting, isn't it, that you get this this identification of big deal people. Right, I mean, in Luke chapter 1, you get get Herod, the king of Judea. The king, right? You know what You know what Herod has? Herod has power. He has authority, doesn't he? He has so much power and so much authority that in just a couple of years, in fact, probably fewer than two years, in just just 12 months or 18 months, he's going to issue an edict and every male child under the age of two will be exterminated. My kids got in last night at 3 a.m. That's why they're not here this morning. 3 a.m., flight delays and all that nonsense and junk. My daughter got up with Sam this morning, about 7.30, 7.45. So distracted, I thought, i, I got to get this sermon written. I mean, come on. And I look at my daughter holding her son, after she's fed him, nursed him, and he's asleep on her chest. And she's asleep. And I think Herod, Herod, with power and authority to exterminate my daughter's son. You get Herod. And then in chapter 2 of Luke, You get Caesar Augustus. Augustus Caesar. Curios Augustus. Lord Augustus. My dictionary tells me that august means marked by majestic dignity or grandeur. Lord Majestic. Lord Majestic. Lord Grand, most powerful person in the world, the ruler of the known and civilized world, Augustus. And then there's Quirinius. We don't know who Quirinius was except that he was the governor of Syria. It's the only thing that Luke tells us about Quirinius But Luke also tells us in those first few verses of his gospel that he's investigated everything very closely. So he knew, even though we don't know, he knew who Quirinius was, governor of Syria. That's all we know about him. But he was a governor, right? You see this? Herod, Caesar Augustus, Quirinius. It's interesting, isn't it, in Matthew chapter 2, When the magi, the wise men from the east come looking for the king, where do they go? They go to Jerusalem. Why? Capital city. To whom do they go when they get to the capital city? Herod, the king. Look, if you're going to look for a king, a newborn king, where do you go? You go to the capital city. And you talk to the current king to ask him about the king who's coming. Where would you go? Right? I mean, isn't this indicting? Where do you go? What are you drawn to? Aren't we all? Don't we all like to kind of tell you who we've been able to rub shoulders with? Like, because something about them rubs off on us... And whatever it is that's on them that rubs off on us makes us look better, more august, more grand. You know, the stunning thing about these first two chapters is that God seems completely driven by something completely different. He has no issue at all with associating with the lowly with the humble, with the weak. Shouldn't that be... I mean, look, I know you think you're the most important person in the world, but trust me, nobody else does. I mean, really, when you take a kind of an honest assessment of yourself, isn't it incredibly encouraging and comforting and hopeful that the God of heaven and earth is pleased... To associate with the lonely. This is Matthew Henry's thing. Matthew Henry's insight. When the angels came to make the announcement of the birth of Jesus, they didn't go to Jerusalem. They didn't seek out the scribes and Pharisees. They didn't seek out King Herod. They found some shepherds. Some shepherds. You know anything about shepherds? I'm reading Genesis. Just finished Genesis. It's part of my Daily Bible reading plan, you know, read through the Bible in a year. It always takes me two, but at least, at least I'm doing it. Come along with me, do it. Even if it takes you five, do it. So Just finished Genesis. Joseph's story, reunion with his brothers, family's coming down to Egypt. Joseph says to his dad, dad, when you go in to meet Pharaoh, tell Pharaoh that you are a keeper of livestock. Don't tell him you're a shepherd because shepherds are an abomination to Egyptians. And things hadn't changed a great deal by the time the announcement comes to the shepherds. Shepherds were at the lowest level socioeconomically, uneducated, they're like, they're like guys in the labor pool. And where does the angel go? To make the announcement. To whom, for whom do the angels sing when they explode in song? Shepherds. To whom did they first speak? To whom did Gabriel first speak? An old man, Zechariah. To whom did he speak next? A fourteen-year-old girl, fifteen-year-old girl. See, God, God doesn't seem to be bothered by association with the humble, the poor, the least likely. In fact, God doesn't seem to be bothered by associating himself with scandal, the scandalous. Look, if people knew your story, would you, would you, would you be okay with that? I mean, I don't mean your story 10 years ago, 15, 30, I mean 15 minutes ago, I mean 24 hours ago. Things you said, things you thought, things you did. Mary's 14 years old, 15 years old. Mary has to go to her dad and say, Dad, I'm pregnant. And then she has to go to Joseph and say, Joseph, I'm pregnant. And they both are going to ask, How did that happen? And she's going to say, The Holy Spirit. And you know what? Two conclusions dad and joseph are likely to come to number one she's an immoral woman and number two she's taken leave of her senses she's a crazy person but it was true and look her dad her mom and joseph they got over it they figured out that it was true But for the rest of her pregnancy and for the rest of Jesus' life, there was an association of immorality and unwanted pregnancy that hounded him and haunted him all the days of his life and ministry. And if you wonder whether or not that's true, read John chapter 8 where the Pharisees are grilling Jesus and Jesus says, you are of your father the devil and they say, our father is Abraham, we don't know who your father is. It haunted and hounded him his whole life. And God the Father takes pleasure in being identified with his glorious and beautiful son who is born in humility, born in weakness, and is the subject of rumor for over 30 years. Isn't that encouraging to you? Isaiah 57 verse 15. Thus says the high and holy one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That's where God loves to dwell. He loves to dwell with the humble, the lowly, the contrite, the weak, the frail, the helpless. Now don't draw the wrong conclusion about this. Poverty in and of itself is not a virtue. It isn't being poor that qualifies you to be a citizen of the kingdom, and being rich doesn't disqualify you from being a citizen of the kingdom. I have a friend who has a a rather twisted sense of humor. After he learned of my episode from a few weeks ago, he sent me a YouTube video link recording the last words of Albin Barkley, who was Harry Truman's vice president, who, after he was vice president, became a senator, having been a senator, and before that a congressman. He was in Lexington, Virginia, April 30th, 1956, and he was speaking to some gathering of people, and he said, I became a congressman, junior congressman. Then I became a senior congressman. Then I went to the Senate and became a junior senator. Then I became a senior senator, Then I became the majority leader. Then I became vice president of the United States. And I'm back again as a junior senator. And then he said something like this, in effect, and it is okay with me to be a junior. I'd rather be a servant in the house of the Lord than sit in the seat of the mighty. and he dropped dead of a heart attack. His last words. See, it isn't about being poor. It isn't about being rich. Though let me tell you, you know it and I do. Riches and power and fame and glory can kill you. But it is about your heart, isn't it? And where does the Lord God love to dwell? He loves to dwell in the hearts of the humble. That's the the Father. That's where the Father loves to dwell. And then there's something throughout this about the Holy Spirit. There's something woven throughout the fabric of these two chapters concerning the Holy Spirit. I want you to make a note of this. You learn something fundamental, something essential regarding the necessity of the agency of the Holy Spirit in this virginal conception, right? As you put it in its larger context. Okay? Folks, this isn't just God showing off and showing that he can do something stupendous. There is something fundamentally necessary about the agency of the Holy Spirit who through Gabriel gave the name Jesus, which means Savior, Deliverer, before the conception. That's what verse 21 tells us. There's something fundamental and essential about the agency of the Holy Spirit and the virginal conception. Let me put it to you this way. And it gets sort of close to what we've just been talking about. We celebrate human achievement, don't we? We celebrate and honor and applaud great minds and great leaders and people of great courage. The world did that recently in the aftermath of the death of Nelson Mandela. By the way, can I just say this little parenthetical editorial thing? I think when the true and final history is written, while Nelson Mandela will be recognized, the one who was the great influence behind Nelson Mandela and all of the others who went to prison was Bishop Desmond Tutu. Without him, And his very clear understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, those more public figures would have lacked the categories with which they were enabled and by which they were enabled to deal with their enemies. Okay. We honor, we celebrate, we should, we give prizes to people Pulitzer Prizes, Nobel Prizes, we write books. We write articles. I read a thing this last week. Charles Krauthammer some time ago had a little piece on Winston Spencer Churchill regarding him as the most important person of the 20th century. More important than Gandhi. More important than Roosevelt. More important than King or Kennedy or Einstein. We celebrate these people. We should recognize their achievements. But let me ask you this. Have we as a race been able... To produce a savior, you get all kinds of knockoffs, all kinds of wannabes. Every presidential election in this country pits a Republican Messiah against a Democratic Messiah. Lots of knockoffs. Every one of them will make political will make promises to us rooted in a political ideology, but none of them has been able to save us. None of them has been able to save us. None of them has been able to reverse the realities of the human condition. The human story is an unending story of tragedy and failure. And the human race can't produce a Savior. Even Israel, right? Think about Israel. A nation created by God. A nation preserved by God. A nation different from every other nation. A nation that was set apart to show the world a different way, a different path a righteousness and a justice which would draw the nations to itself. That is why Israel was created, to show the world a difference. Read Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through 8, where God says, through Moses to the nation, look, this law will be for you justice and righteousness so that the nations of the world will say... What nation is there that has a God like this? They were created to be different. But what's the story of Israel? What's the story of the Jewish people? People marvel at this, and they should marvel at this. Do you know how many Jews there are living in the world today? About 13 and a half million. Two-tenths of 1% of the world's population. Two-tenths of 1%. And we marvel at their influence in the arts, in entertainment, in philosophy historically, in business and finance. We marvel. But here's the question. Be careful before you answer this question have they been able to produce a Savior? Think about it. Have they been able to produce a Savior? Let me let Isaiah answer the question for us. The Bible, Isaiah 26, verses 16 through 18. O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth. Here's the picture. This is what Isaiah sees. This is what God, by the agency of this Holy Spirit, enables Isaiah to see. He speaks for himself. He speaks for the whole nation. He sees the world. He sees the earth. He sees the nations of the earth in bondage to sin and darkness. Helpless, powerless, crying out for deliverance. And here is Israel in the midst of the nations birthed by God through Abraham, multiplied by God through his providence, a nation in the midst of nations, designed by God to show the world a different way, a different path, to show the world justice and righteousness. And Isaiah says, God says through him, Israel has given birth to nothing, to the wind. It doesn't matter where you look, folks. It doesn't matter where you look. You can look to the nations, presidents, parliaments, powers. You can look to Israel. You can focus attention on Israel. You can look to Mary. But from the nations of the earth, from the inhabitants of the earth, there is no Savior forthcoming. Because while we can give birth to great minds and brilliant leaders, we cannot give birth to one who is able to eradicate from the human soul the cancer of sin. And you know, The new heaven and the new earth is going to be a blast. And it's going to last for a very, very long time, like forever. And at some point, I'm going to get a chance to talk to Mary, and I'm going to to ask Mary, Mary, when you were interacting with that angel Gabriel, what was in your head when you asked him the question, how will this be? Were you thinking simply of the fact that as an unmarried woman, you couldn't give birth to a deliverer, redeemer, savior? How is it going to happen that I, an unmarried woman, will conceive in my womb? I don't like the thought of that. Or Mary, might you have been thinking a little bit more deeply See, it's very clear that Mary got some things, understood some things, saw some things. Read her song. Listen to her as she sings after visiting Elizabeth. She knew her Bible. She knew the Scriptures. She knew the promises. She knew the hope. Mary, I want to ask her, Mary, is it possible that you were thinking a little bit more deeply than simply science and biology. Mary, were you thinking, how is it possible for a sinful daughter of sinful parents who themselves were sinful children of their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, how can it be that I, a daughter of Adam and Eve, could give birth to the Savior of the world because He will be corrupted by the corruption I carry in my own soul? And the Holy Spirit... Answers what I think was a multi layered question and not simply a question of biology. Mary, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you, and therefore the child within you will be called Holy. Mary, here's what will happen. The Spirit will take from you what you are, a true human being. And this child will share your nature, But the power of God by the agency of the Holy Spirit will unite your real and true human nature to a divine nature. The nature of Almighty God. And in that union, this true and real humanity will be kept from the corrupting influence of sin. And so will be called holy. Mary, you're right. You, by yourself, will never give birth to the Savior of the world. But by the agency of the Holy Spirit, who will overshadow you, there will be produced in your womb this one person With these two natures. Heard a guy say this last week. Shocking. I mean, I have to, look, I have to go to my go-to people to make sure that I'm not outside the circle. Okay? Heard this guy say this last week. Read this this last week. Interesting to think about Jesus as he was growing up and how the neighbors, the folks in the neighborhood, would look at Jesus and say, huh, he kind of looks like his mom. He kind of looks like his mom. Not his dad, but his mom. Because he had the DNA of Mary in his body. See, this is not an in vitro fertilization where the Holy Spirit just sort of implants something in the womb of Mary. This is a real, true human nature from Mary, united to a divine nature. A zygote. A zygote from its conception, declared to be holy. See, you want a brain cramp? Work with that one. But this is what we're being taught, and this is what happened, and this is what had to happen if a Savior was going to come into the world to be your sinless substitute, that he might live a life of perfect obedience in order to die a substitutionary death in your behalf. It had to be this way. There's no other way. Don't look to the powers, people, programs of this world, they will not save you because they cannot. Jesus, in his unique person, two natures, fully human and fully divine, not half and half, That's what the early church struggled with. That's why they produced at Nicaea that statement and later at Chalcedon, that enlarged statement that we use now, 19, 17 centuries later, the Nicene Creed. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father for your salvation. And so then it teaches us something finally about Jesus, doesn't it? It teaches us so much about Jesus, about who he is, about what he came to do. And who he is and what he came to do is captured in these names, these titles that are on the lips of the angel as the angel speaks to these humble shepherds. Fear not, I'm bringing you some gloriously good news and this glorious good news will produce great joy that will be for all the people. Isaiah 9, Isaiah 9, you have multiplied the nation Isaiah 26, finally, finally, a woman in the contractions of delivery gives birth not to the wind, but to a real and true Savior who can deal with the biggest, deepest, most serious problem in the world. Look, people walk away from this. I understand that. They get up and they walk away from this. But what is the biggest and deepest and most pervasive problem in the whole world? It is the problem of sin and it is lodged deeply in every human heart. And finally, there is a birth that will bring great joy to all The people, for in the city of David this day is born a Savior, a Jesus who has power to save us from ourselves. And He is the Christ, He is the Christ, the Messiah, He is the perfect prophet who doesn't simply receive the word of God, but who is the word of God. He is the perfect priest who doesn't simply make a sacrifice, but who is himself the sacrifice. And he is the perfect king who when he comes and lives and dies and is raised and is ascended to the right hand of the Father, he brings in the kingdom of righteousness and justice that Deuteronomy talked about and which Isaiah 9 says, so anticipated he is the Messiah and he is the Lord the Kurios the great august one he is the one before whom all the nations of the earth will bow you'll learn a lot as you read through Luke 1 and 2 About the pleasure of the Father in dwelling with the humble, about the necessity of the agency of the Holy Spirit if ever a Savior is to be produced. And you learn a lot about Jesus, don't you? And who He is, and all that He comes to do. All to the end that in each of our hearts there might be great and ever-expanding joy. Do you know that joy? Albin Barclay knew that joy and was only too pleased on April 30th, 1956 to tell who knows who. And this guy I met with last week, 96 hours old, A babe knew that joy. It is there in the person of Jesus. Let's pray.